that's a, that that's an eerie picture though. It's like you you wake up and you're like, what? What? what's that mule doing over there? And you like see that it has a gun, and you're like, oh no, they've oh, armed God, the, the mules. The, the mule has a gun. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. Well, good evening to you, sir. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurist best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person, or a past event, as the case may be and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what are we doing this week, this late, late week? Today, we are continuing to fulfill our sacred duty to the listeners and giving you part two of the saga of the Boer Wars and the story of Denis Rates. Excellent, and it's always good to tie up those loose ends. Well, that is generally how the British Empire operated as well. If you consider anything valuable that wasn't in their greedy little hands as loose ends. <laughs> such such bastards as these, they just don't stop, do they? No, no, they generally don't, at least not for long. But that ass-kicking they received last week in the first Bell Reward did slow down the spread of the grasping tentacles of empire for a little while at least. Uh, it's the little things like that that warm the heart on a cold day such as this. Absolutely. Well, I think we've kept the world in suspense long enough, so shall we head down? We will in just a second after these announcements. Okay, so we've <laughs> this got some... brought to you by Raid Shadow Legends. <laughs> Uh, we've got some... We're, okay, we're trying to do more with the show without doing much more work. <laughs> so, uh, we've got some ideas in the, uh, in, in the, in the little, uh, in the little, uh, iron fire. I don't know. So, here, here's what I do know. I do know that James is wanting to come back, uh, like, for real this time. He's settled into his job a little bit, and we're gonna try to get him back on the show just for laughs. He's not gonna do any research, no nothing. He's just gonna be here There's have a, joke a good to time. There's there. No, there's not. There's really, there's really, how dare you, sir? <laughs> no, James is obviously funnier than both of us, so we want him in uh, as, as much as we can get him. And James, I know you're listening to this, buddy, so uh, make good. <laughs> the other thing is uh, we, we have been toying around for literal years uh, with the idea of setting up a listener Discord server, and it never happened because I didn't understand how Discord worked, um, but recently I've been tooling around with it a little bit more, and I think we're going to be able to set that up so we have, like, a, a meme hangout in a chat room if you guys want to hang out. We drop in every now and then, just say hi. And it's possible we'll start streaming games there, and James is very interested in joining up with that. So there <laughs> will be a link... You can watch me get my ass obliterated and my cigarettes stolen and escape from Tarkov. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's a fairly common uh, happening in that uh, that world of that game. Um, but yes, yeah, so we're, we've got that set up. I, again, I'm an amateur at this, so if it goes down or breaks or there's some shit that happens where, like, somebody's like, I don't know, um, just writing their life story in the chat or something, you know, I, we'll, we're gonna try to figure that out. The point is, we're amateurs. We will refer um, to you to a qualified therapist. Yes. <laughs> but we'll do our best. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna give that a shot. We think it'll add something, you know, something like a little community to the show, because I know a lot of people who listen use Discord. Um, so again, there will be a link in the description. I hope it works. Please don't fuck it up. 
<laughs> um, and then obviously the last thing that I have on my bulletin here, uh, if you'll if you'll turn with me uh, to your church bulletin, please. Uh, the third thing is that we have no idea what the fuck is going on out there right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're right there with you. And, uh, well, Godspeed to all of you. <laughs> Wait, you're with least. me in the bunker? No, no, I'm with I, you. I was going to say, like, I have to examine the security system. I mean, I am remote viewing literally right now. I, I see what you're doing with that hot pocket. It's, the statue, not, of, it's the statue of the bird, isn't it? Knew uh, it. The statue of the bird? What? Where the camera is. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> because the birds are all, yeah. Yeah, no. No, I'm remote viewing with my mind. I don't need a camera. Ah, yes. Aaron has learned astral projection since he got a job. It's, it's true. It's an important it, resume line. Very, very important. Very important in the work we do here. We talk about dead people. One of our favorite pastimes, in fact, is watching you right now, listener, as you consume delicious, delicious history and context. Um, It's okay. We, we won't tell anyone. <laughs> and with that, uh, I think it is time to go down to the History Lab. What do you think, George? Let's do it. Sweet. One 17-year-old kid, two fledgling Boer republics, a lot of men in hats that kind of look like cowboy hats but aren't, and the innumerable crimes of the British Empire. Seriously, what is what is their deal? I, I have no answers. Join us for the Second Boer War and the exploits of Danae's rates. That was good. Badass. Thank you, good. sir. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wow, I haven't heard that voice before. I haven't done it yet. That's the. Uh, you been, have you been keeping that one in reserve? Uh, oh yeah, that's um, that's in reserve. That's my um, Doctor Strange love. Ah, yes, How I Learned to Love the Bomb. <laughs> Have you seen that movie? Long, long time ago. I don't really remember anything of it. Oh, it's worth watching now. It is worth watching <laughs> right now. Um, yes, we have, we have made ourselves a bunker beneath the surface. We will be safe, and we will perhaps have 50 women to each man to repopulate the Earth. Oh, God, it's so bad. So good. So bad. I don't know. I don't know. But that's what he sounds like, and I don't know why. I hear you vaping over there. <laughs> you didn't hear anything. So, George, if you could bring one drug back in time to one person, what would it be and who would get it? Well, when I wrote this episode 47 weeks ago, I think I had something in mind, but I have since forgotten. So I'm going to have to just, just go off the cuff on this one. Um, Probably like crack to Attila the Hun, because like... You know, let's already take one of the high achievers and just see what they can do with a with a little bit of that lightning in the system. Man, I don't know if it would do anything. I feel like he would just consume it and just be like, why did you give me that? <laughs> I was already super high on power. Or some I was shit. already a crackhead. <laughs> and then he goes and cracks heads. So that's funny. That was a joke there. Um, care to... Uh, yeah, I think that's that's a good answer. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I think I, I think I had something in mind, but I have no idea what it was. Um, what about you? What about you? What would you bring back, and to whom? I don't know. I think I'd take, I'd probably take, uh, psilocybin for sure to Socrates. Oh shit, that would be crazy, man. There's like this this city, and like the people we're, we're gonna tell them that like different people have like 
different metal in them. Like, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it takes psilocybin back to, uh, um, hmm. Who could use a really good trip? Hmm. Um, hmm. I can think of a couple of people who might, but it's like you get into that era when people were actually starting to discover things like that. So it's like can't be the 20th century because they were so they were crazy on some like LSD shit. Yeah, so like, that's just a waste of a waste of the power. Um, what mm. about like Roger Bacon? <laughs> oh, ooh, Roger Bacon! Like he probably would have built a spaceship. He would have chilled the fuck out and built a spaceship if he got some psilocybin. Ooh, maybe, or maybe, then maybe, maybe you should have brought back a joint for Roger Bacon so he could have just calmed down, not been a dick to everyone, and maybe <laughs> actually gotten some of his scientific innovations adopted by people. Yeah, pothead Roger Bacon sounds we, like a We pretty- would have Mars colonies if Roger Bacon had just chilled out and smoked a little. I feel like, oh, okay, what if we brought psilocybin to Swedenborg? Didn't he have some? Like he didn't need it. <laughs> Crack to Swedenborg. <laughs> that would be uh that would be hilarious in so many ways. So uh it look it says here in the not script that you're going to explain some kind of format. Oh yeah, you know, MLA, normal footnotes, you know you've been in school. No, um so I was just basically this episode is gonna be a little bit different than how we normally do things because it's going to be a very, very close and personal narrative. By which I mean that it's going to really just follow the experiences and impressions of Danae's rights uh rates rather than being <laughs> shut up. Rather, uh, hey, I know you study German, it's okay. You don't know anything about me, <laughs> Alan. You, 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 you know, like, eight languages. <laughs> anyway, so last episode was very much big picture, like, who are the Boers? Why are they there? Why do they have hats? Um, and so this one's going to really, really just be following the sort of experiences of this young man at the start of the Second Boer War. Uh, kind of kind of like the way we did with the Mad Trapper, where it really is sort of a, a just continuous narrative rather than... The, the big picture. And then probably next time we're going to conclude with a more normal, bigger picture episode with how the war turns out and then what Denise rates does after the war. Sweet. It's, it's, I would say, what is this? Like the second time we've got, we've been like wanting to do a two parter and then it turned into a three parter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ireland was originally going to be a two, well, it was originally going to be a one parter. Then it was going to be a two parter and then it was going to be a four parter. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Sometimes you just get rolling, you know. <laughs> well, the Irish, the Irish obviously deserve four. They deserve episodes. it. Yeah, like they they deserve every break they can get. Yep. Yep. All right, computer. Please bring up Danae's rates. Okay, so yeah, with that then, uh, I know we already did the whole physical description deal last week, but I decided that we should do it again. So I have brought a photo of Denise at an older age, after the war. And, uh, yeah, here's the photo. Go for it. Well, this is a man who has definitely seen war. I mean, he's got steely eyes, and they're just staring off to a far horizon. I did steal that, by the way. Uh. (laughs) He actually has a... You know, usually I like to emphasize ears, because I think ears are probably the funniest thing about a human head. They're kind of low on his head, aren't they? Yeah, he's got some low-set ears, and they're not very big, uh... Unlike, you know, devil ants of the Hatfields and McCoys. 
Um, this guy, uh, man, I, there's just something about that nose. He's got a, like a button nose, doesn't he? <laughs> and uh, he's got a, a widow's peak. And, like, oh, he does, little, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of peach fuzz, and it, that widow's peak makes him look like Mega Mind. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> um, he has, he's got. Uh, let's see what. I don't even know what kind of collar that is. Is there a name for that? I think it's called a wingtip. Okay, he's got a wingtip collar, whatever, and he has a tie that looks like a rope. <laughs> hey, and then uh, he's got a pretty sweet looking jacket. Gotta say, um, yeah. This is an interesting looking man. Yeah, the, the tapering on the lapels is kind of intriguing. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's about gonna you know, do it. I will say though, like, he's not he's not funny looking, he's not weird looking, he's just kinda normal looking. Um not like, of course, Devil Ants who looked like a goblin, so <laughs> that that's true. Definitely, like you said, though, looks like he's seen some shit. Yeah, he does. Which, mm. as we'll see today, he he had at this point, because this is later in his life after the war. Right. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's get started then, and let's just make sure we're sort of up to speed on our story. Uh, do you happen to remember anything from last week, Aaron? I seem to remember a bunch of Dutchmen getting into a shipwreck and having to live at the Cape of Good Hope, and then getting forced inland by the tyrannical British Empire. Well, first uh, it was by the tyrannical Dutch company, and then by the tyrannical British Empire. Ah, yes, I forgot it was kinda, the They Dutch. were just trying to escape the whole time. Yeah, they just, they just, yeah, they just want to be away from all that shit. But uh, companies have a way of like these East India, Dutch India, or whatever these these kinds of companies tend to have a, have a problem with people who just wanted to be left alone. Um, so that that's about. It. And then there was a war or something, and the British yeah. got their ass beat. That's yeah, because the, the British part. just kept like unilaterally annexing territories and being like, oh yes, this nice little republic of yours, it's ours now. <laughs> Surely good. <laughs> And eventually somebody was like, mm, no. Not so much, sir. And the British, yeah, got humiliatingly defeated and then sort of retreated to their dark caves to plot yet again. <laughs> okay, so for, for those of you who have been listening for a long time, uh, you know I'm an avid fan of G.K. Chesterton. Um, I was reading an essay, actually, about this exact thing. Um, he wrote a, uh, a series of essays called What's Wrong with the World? And it's basically like why everything kind of sucks all the time for a lot of re for a lot of people and for a lot of different reasons. And he just kind of outlines it. He's like, yeah, so some people are like psychopaths and they can't leave well enough alone and they've always got to be meddling with things. And most people just want a house, a wife, a couple of kids and a good life. And that's about it. But there's all, there's these psychopaths in the world who just can't get enough. <laughs> and I was like, how lucid. That was over a hundred years ago that he wrote that. And many of them are employed in the British Empire. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. So Shall we get into it? Yep, let's do it. Let's do it. So when we left off, um, Denis was just 17, and he had just, um, through very circuitous means gotten into the military because he was technically too young, but because his dad was the sort of equivalent of the Secretary of State, he sort of tagged along to a meeting and personally asked Paul Kruger, the president of the um, Boer Republic, if he could join the army. And uh, Paul was like, yeah, sure. And took him down the hall to the leader of the Boer Armed Forces, who told him how he can sneak aboard a train and was like, that's how you can do it. Ah, yes. What a great, great start. 
Yep, so there we are. Denes is 17 and is not technically a soldier, but he, and this is a direct quote from his memoir, became a soldier of the Boer army by virtue of having thrown his belongings through a carriage window and clambering aboard, little knowing how long and difficult a trail this light-hearted enlistment was starting him on. Oh, God. Oh, oh no. That's just, you're just throwing your shit through a carriage window and then... Before you know it, second Boer War, <laughs> yep. or the first, sorry. Yep. And it's not just him, it's his brother, uh, his brother is there as well, Joubert. Okay, okay. Yep, so it's him and his brother. And so they disembark from this train about 10 miles from the border of the British Natal, which is where the Boer forces were assembling. Of course, the British Natal was formerly the n part of, uh, you know, the Boer area, and the British just came in and after gold was discovered, said it was theirs. So this is one of those places that, uh, yeah, the British just took. Right. And that's I where the Boers that. were assembling and continuing to assemble, coming in from all the great stretches of the countryside because they're very decentralized. You know, they're mostly ranchers and farmers and stuff, and not that many of them live in the uh, cities. Right. So they all got to come out and, you know, meet up for a barbecue. Before yep. they Ride in with it. the hats that look kind of like cowboy hats. Best hats. Exactly. So on the uh, on the 10th of October, as everyone's gathering there, they hold a celebration for President Kruger's birthday. And Denes actually describes the scene, which was probably the largest group of horsemen ever assembled in South Africa, because there are literally tens of thousands of horsemen all riding in this parade for President Kruger's birthday. Wow, it's pretty awesome. And he says, uh, so they're all processing past President Kruger and each man brandishing hat or rifle according to his individual idea of a military salute. So Which, like a ramshackle kind of. Yeah, because these are not professional soldiers. These are ranchers and farmers who, when the call to arms comes, just show up, you know, with whatever weapons they have, wearing whatever they were wearing. These are not professional soldiers. It's like that first day of community service when you don't have your safety vest yet and, you know, you got your DUI. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just there, still drunk. <laughs> I, I guess I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, no, no I, I wouldn't either. I just saw it in Better Call Saul. <laughs> nice, nice. So, um, so Denise and his brother, Joubert, uh, joined with a commando, that's what they call their sort of military units, from their neighborhood, of Pretoria, the capital. And uh, since organization was voluntary among the Boers, you just join up with whatever group you want. And they elected as their leaders five brothers from the neighborhood of by the name of Malherba. Which okay. is kind of cool that you have like five brothers who are all sort of jointly the leader. That is pretty badass. That's a that's a tight knit group right there. I was gonna say yeah. I was gonna say that sounds like some sort of Dark Souls boss where you have to fight five brothers. The brothers Malherba. <laughs> that actually does sound like a Dark Souls boss. It does. I, could see I it want it. <laughs> probably have a scythe or something. Yeah. And then there's the one who like stands off to the side of the little lightning bolt and won't leave you alone. <sighs> the worst. And he's like, you get him down to like a little inch of health and then he just pulls out a move you've never seen before <laughs> and blows Ter you to kingdom come. Terrible flashbacks. I'm sorry. Yeah. So on the next day, um, so the 11th, War was officially declared in response to the British refusal to withdraw from the border, and on the 12th of October, 1899, the great mass of horsemen begins to move. Uh -oh. And this is a, a longer section from Denise's memoirs, and why don't, why don't you read this one for us? 
Ah, uh, yes. Okay. What? Trying to figure out what voice I should use. Is he? I, is he? A, is he a heroic type person? Well, I mean, he is, but he's also only seventeen. Oh, okay. But when he wrote this, he was older, right? Yeah, he wrote this after the war, so he wrote this in his twenties. All right. I'll I'll read it like uh, Lemony Snicket or whatever. I'm just kidding. I don't know what that means. <laughs> as far as the eye could see, the plain was alive with horsemen, guns, and cattle all steadily going forward to the front. The scene was a stirring one. I shall never forget riding to war with that great host. It has all ended in disaster, and I am writing this in a strange country, but the memory of those first days will ever remain. Wow, that was actually a really good voice for that. Thanks, bud. That, rem that, actually, <laughs> that reminds me of an audiobook of Dante's Inferno that I listened to. That's what the narrator sounded like. Hot damn. Have you ever listened to the audio version of The Lord of the Rings? No. It's the most British frickin' voice I've ever heard. And I, I keep making this joke with my friends. I'm like, yeah, like, I'm listening... I, you know, at work, I just listen to books and podcasts all day. Um, and it's it just started cracking me up because it turns out one of Tolkien's favorite words is peril. And so it's this constant, like, and the hobbits looked behind them and they saw a mass of great perils. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, they they could not do anything to reduce their pedal. <laughs> it's so good. Very pure. Excellent. Excellent. Uh -oh. So yeah, so that night, uh, Denes and his uh, his commando camped at the foot of a monument erected f for the Boer victory at Majuba Hill, which had been in that first Boer War, which is where our friend General George Pomeroy Coley had been killed. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, you remember, you remember that asshole. How could I forget the illustrious General Coley? Mm -hmm. Distasteful business. <laughs> Very distasteful. <laughs> so um, after Cigars. after camping there, <laughs> the next day they had to uh, cross over the Drakensberg Mountains through a driving rain and a cold wind. And the paths were reduced to just a muddy hell by the tramp of all the horses. And since there's no path that such a large force could cross by, Altogether, the Boers all broke up into their individual commando units and all crossed separately, finding their own way through the rain and the mud and reconvening on the other side of the mountains. The Oregon Trail, more like the Drakensberg Mountain Trail, am I right? Or like going over the Misty Mountains. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. You're going to yeah. start singing, aren't you? I, I almost did. I, I just stopped myself, though. Okay. I recovered. <laughs> but because of that rain, um, they were unable to light fires. So uh, Denes and his comrades spent a really, really terrible, wretched night on the far slopes of the Drakensberg Mountains, just huddling there in their hats and coats and whatnot in the rain. Just like, yep, it's just it's we're at war now. I can see a sad cat in a Boer uniform in the rain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just a cat with the crying The sad eyes. cat meme. Yep. Yep. But fortunately, at sunrise, the weather cleared, and with it, their spirits were lifted. And uh, uh, Denise writes... <laughs> Denise writes, writes... Oh, <laughs> oh God, uh, read it. Read it, Aaron. I, I don't know if I can replicate the voice, but I will try. After a long ride, we emerged into the open country, and there, winding across the plain, ran the Buffalo River with the green hills and the pleasant valleys and then tall stretching beyond. With one accord, the long files of horsemen reined in, and we gazed silently on the land of promise. Perfect. Yep. So yeah, as, as we said uh, said before, the uh, the Natal had been 
theirs. It had been Boer land that the British had just illegally annexed. And so coming back to it is probably kind of a, an emotional sort of spiritual thing. Yeah. And um, once they once they're there on the looking out over the plains, they're co- the commander of their particular part of the army, General Marula, addressed the men and told them that the Natal was a heritage that had been stolen from their ancestors and which they would now take back from the British usurpers. Uh, that sounds good to me. I, <laughs> I'm I mean, all sign, about taking things up, back Chief. from. I'm all about taking things back from British usurpers. Put me in, Coach. I'm ready. <laughs> I know, I know, buddy. Yeah. But so, in another night march, because um, they did a lot of these, uh, they approached the first British position, which they intended to inta- attack, which was the town and military encampment of Dundee. Um, Danaise's unit of his little neighborhood in Pretoria, where they were from, because they. They broke into units based on their neighborhood for the most part. They were sent to assault the ridge, which overlooked Dundee, which they expected would be fortified by the British. And it was unfortunately once again raining with a heavy fog rolling in, so they could not see a damn thing. And when they got to the top and, like, cautiously advanced, like, expecting to literally hit, like, a trench or a sandbag wall or something... You know, they were expecting to run right into a British fortification. Uh, they just didn't. They're just advancing through the fog. You can only see like five feet in front of them. But they Oof. could pretty confidently say that the British weren't there. Oh, good. The British aren't coming either, are they? Well, they eventually. eventually. Damn it. They always come. They always do, <laughs> yeah. So, Denais describes the ascent, and he talks about how they're just expecting to be fired upon at any moment. Because they're just slowly working their way up this hill and then across the plateau, cannot see in front of them. And they know they're in a ridge overlooking the British camp, so they're just expecting to literally run headlong into British forces. And he says, when we reached the wide plateau above, we found it deserted. This was so unlooked for that no one seemed to know what to do next. <laughs> Which, I, have, I guess, fair. Yeah, I... Yeah, yeah. I was going to criticize your voice, but... (laughs) Go ahead, criticize my voice, Aaron. (laughs) It's fine. Fine. (laughs) You sound like a squire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I use that voice in the medieval stuff a lot. Anyway, so, um... (laughs) It's still raining, and foggy, and it's still dark, because remember, they're doing this at the end of a night march, so it's like early, early morning. And they really just couldn't see anything. Uh, but as they got to the other edge of the plateau, still not having encountered British fortifications, they could hear the sounds of the British encampment below them. Horses and wagons and men's British voices saying British things. That sounds very perilous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Unfortunately, they still couldn't see shit, even though they could hear the British, so they just sort of chilled up there, since they'd been expecting to have to fight a battle, and they didn't really have another plan, and they also couldn't see anything, they just kind of, uh, kind of waited around, and this is sort of indicative of what is the greatest weakness of the Boer military, that leadership and command was often very lackluster at the middle levels. Like, the individual commando units with its elected officers functioned very, very well, and they had some very good high-level commanders, but the people in between were often not very competent and not very effective at managing the troops. Oh, that's that's too bad. Yeah, mm. but since they're a non-professional army, that's kind of to be expected. That For sure. You don't really have a career officer corps who are good at being the intermediaries. For sure. Nothing yep. like nothing like a uh, General Coley. <laughs> now George Pomeroy Coley. 
Uh, okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but so they're just up there in the fog and the rain and whatnot. And soon enough, they heard guns open up, rifles, cannon, and Maxim machine guns all start. And since they still have zero visibility, they still couldn't really do anything and wait because they don't actually know wh- where exactly the battle's happening or what's happening. They just know that some part of the the main Boer force that's not up on the ridge with them must be fighting the British somewhere nearby but they can't see anything because it's still dark and there's fog and rain and they're just still sitting there with the funny hats being like well um do you have any sevens (laughs) (laughs) very perilous very perilous and uh yeah Danae's actually talks a lot about how irritating it was to just be sitting there while the first battle of their war for liberation was being engaged somewhere nearby in the fog and they're just sitting you know chilling sitting on a rock just kind of like waiting for their something to happen and maybe to be able to see what they're supposed to do and i can imagine that being pretty annoying yeah for sure yeah it's like when mm. the enemy attacks your villagers while they're gathering and you have a huge army, but it's somewhere else. And so you just have to kind of watch them attack your villagers and you can't do anything. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. We're talking about age of mythology here, aren't we? We, we might be. We, we might, might be. be. <laughs> Can neither confirm nor deny. Man, we're probably going to stream some games of that at some point. My God. Ranks upon ranks of dwarves. You have that's no idea. True. Yeah, you'll see. Yeah. But soon the uh, the fog finally begins to break up and it starts to get light, and starting on the side of the ridge from which they had come, so behind their current position is where the fog really starts to break up first, and they're able to see some things back there, and a sentry actually spots a column of several hundred British cavalry moving behind the Boer army from the way they'd come, apparently trying to find a way to rejoin their own forces in front of the ridge. And, um, yeah, Danae's actually comments that he never was really able to figure out how they got there or why. <laughs> just kind of <laughs> wandered around. Yeah, they just there. kind of like, that's weird. There's 300 British cavalry back the way we just came from. Uh, and, whoops. um, yeah, so uh, they could also see uh, individual little specks out on the field of, of individual Boer mounted riflemen harassing and pursuing the British across the plain um, because the Boers are very very uh, individual in their their warfare and so you just have individual guys on their horses chasing 300 british cavalry wow firing from their saddles like the mongol archers of old oh 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 what you know this is why the british lost the revolutionary war is cuz they like to do things like ranks and the and the americans like they hid behind trees and unlike the stupid british who just <laughs> God, that's such a such an obnoxious take because it's just not true like literally the the whole point of almost everything washington did was trying to build a continental style army i know that's that's the joke (laughs) yeah i know it's just i've heard that one so many times that it's it's a fun one it is a fun one it's like i asked vietnam part one (laughs) oh god Anyway, um, so yeah, so they can see these uh, this column of British cavalry trying to get somewhere and being harassed by men in funny hats. And so uh, with most of their detachment up on top of that ridge still crowded on the other side of the ridge, waiting for the fog to clear and figure out where that other battle's happening, uh, Denes and his little group with his superior, Corporal Malherba, and five or six other men from their unit mount up and ride headlong down the mountainside they'd come up before to join the pursuit. 
So mm. here we are at last at young Denis Rates's first actual combat experience since sitting on a rock in the fog while a battle happens somewhere nearby doesn't really count. Yeah, that 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 does not count. I would not say that was the first battle. So we're he's finally seeing some action. Yep. So yeah, they're they've they've gotten on the horses and they're just heading down to ch- join the chase. And the rolling terrain of the uh, the plains means that uh, they frequently can't see the British. They can kind of just see the British when either they come to the top of a little hill or the British come to the top of a little little hill. But they can follow pretty well from the sound of the gunshots. And as they crest a rise, they see that the English have gone to ground at a farmhouse. They've dismounted and taken covered firing positions behind the walls of cattle enclosures and around the barn and stuff. They've just sort of all you know, gotten in position in this little farmstead to, to wait it out. And from I always all feel sides, bad for the farmers. <laughs> I assume they probably weren't there. Well, yeah, but still, their house is getting shot up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, that's and so from all sides, uh, Boers are converging upon the cut-off British detachment. And Corporal Malherba sees that there's a dry stream bed running across the plain directly in front of the homestead. So he leads uh, Denes and his other five or six men in a headlong rush into the stream bed, riding directly into the face of the British gunfire. Because he's like, ah, we're now on top of this hill. We have no cover. The British are now, you know, in firing position. We need to get to cover. And he obviously doesn't want to just retreat back the way they came. So he just leads them head on towards this stream bed that's between the British and them. Oh, God. Woo! Yeah, and uh, Denise writes about this. And take it away, Aaron. Okay. Ahem, ahem. For the first time in my... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. For the first time in my life, I heard the sharp hiss of rifle bullets about my ears. I'm going through like ten different accents right now. And for the first time, I experienced the thrill of riding into action. Action. My previous <laughs> idea of battle had been different, but there was almost nothing to see here. The soldiers were hidden, and except for the occasional helmet and the spurts of dust flicked up around us, there was nothing. Mmm. Mmm. Yep. Pedal! <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, they reached the stream bed with only one man wounded, and they dismounted their horses in the safe cover of the banks, and they climbed up to the edge to begin firing. Uh-oh. And so this is this is Denise's first first time actually shooting at the British. And soon a What a rush. <laughs> I know, right? We we're all chasing that hive our first time shooting at the British. Soon, oh. a, a Boer artillery piece is brought up from one of the other sides because the Boers are, you know, 360 degree encircling this farmhouse, closing in. Um, and so they bring up an artillery piece, and the first shell that lands sends all 300 horses of the British into a stampede because they'd gotten off their horses and just sort of herded them into a, you know, into a meadow. And as soon as that first shell lands near the farmstead, all 300 horses start stampeding. Oh, God. Yeah, and uh, Denise and his little little detachment are in the direct path of the stampede, which oh. is probably really terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Oof. so they have, they have to rush back down into the creek bed to get on their own horses and hastily beat a path out of the way to avoid being trampled by the surge. And so while Denise and his company were trying to both outrun and also to sort of slow down and contain the stampede, so they're kind of on the edges of it, like trying to, you know, trying to like slowly get them to stop, but also not be trampled by them. Right. Uh, the, the British raised the white flag over the farmhouse and laid down their arms. Oh. 
Wow. So they won their first battle. I mean, I, I think, yeah, once like once you're surrounded and you've now lost all your horses, I think that probably is a pretty good time to surrender. Yeah. Because like yeah. The, at what point do you possibly get out of there? I know you can't really hoof it out of there anymore, can you? <laughs> oh. Aha! oh. Yep. Nay. <laughs> nay, nay, indeed, my good sir. <laughs> so, um, Denes and the others made their way back to the uh, farmhouse once they'd gotten control of the horses to watch the proceedings. Um, the British commanding officer, a certain Colonel Mola, uh, <laughs> looked rather crestfallen, according oh. to Denes. <laughs> crestfallen knight in Dark Souls, he just laughs darkly. <laughs> you still have hope. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that guy was a jerk. Anyway, um, yeah, he, he was a he was a dick. So, um, the, but in this word, according to Denise, the men actually seemed to be rather cheerful considering the circumstances. Like, apparently, the men were all like just joking around Britishly. It's like, oh yes, <laughs> we've surrendered, <laughs> jolly good. <laughs> Yeah, apparently they're, they've really got that, that esprit de corps or something. and it's Something um, like that. <laughs> something, yeah. Emphasis on the spear. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Denise was also very, very disappointed to see the drab khaki-colored uniforms, which had replaced the scarlet ones which he had seen when he visited England with his father. Um, because this is actually the first battle in which the British Army wore khaki ever. Hmm. They'd literally just changed to khaki uniforms. They used to have the really nice, yeah, sc- scarlet ones with the, you know, the white pith helmets and everything. Like, have you ever seen Zulu? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's was... how they... This is the first battle. They're not wearing that anymore. Wow, now so it's just Dede's like this... was very disappointed. Well, I'd be disappointed, too. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to see some real British soldiers and they're... Their red uniforms and their, and their white... Their white helmets. And then you get there and they're just, like, there in drab. Yeah, and just, like, <laughs> khaki. It's like, jeez. Like whoa, guys! How I practical to see all are this we khaki, I could have gone and hung out with some office workers. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, they don't wear khaki anymore. They wear jeans and untucked uh, shirts. Ah uh, yes, if they work in open offices without walls. The hipsterization—it's so beautiful, <laughs> terrible. So anyway, yes, uh, Dene says this somewhat disappointed me, as it seemed to detract from the glamour of wall. He was so yeah, That's he was better. sad. I mean, said. But the thoughts of the glamour of war and everything were soon overshadowed when young Denise came face to face with the dead. And oh. here's what he has to say. Take it away. Worse still was the sight of the dead soldiers. There were the first men I had seen killed in anger, and their ashen faces and staring eyeballs came back as a great shock. For I had pictured the dignity of death in battle but I now saw that it was horrible to look upon. Oof. Yeah, I mean, you know, 17 years old, so he is still pretty much a kid, so I can see this being a little bit traumatic. Yeah, okay, that was so cold, I need to turn on my heater. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. However, uh, such considerations did give way soon to excitement at having survived his first engagement and a successful one at that they they had won they'd beaten this this group and uh Denise very enthusiastically made his way through the captured soldiers talking and asking questions and apparently just generally making small talk with who, any of the british who would talk to him and just sort of being friendly it's you know you got to remember that he's still just like a 17 year old kid who's just excited about new things and like it's like hey guys you got captured huh like that's cool <laughs> like <laughs> wow <laughs> 
That's that's interesting. Um, I also would like to point out that he is a boar, and they were very nice, except for when you fight them. <laughs> so yeah, he's just he's still still very much a kid, even if he is now a, a warrior. Sad. And so while this whole little side battle had been going on, um, the British had actually pushed an offensive against the main body of the Boer troops, which it turns out is what they had been hearing from the top of the ridge, and had actually forced the main body of the Boers to withdraw a little bit from the original position they had taken outside Dundee, but had suffered rather heavy casualties, including the British commander in the area, General Penn Simmons. Wait. The British commit. How can you say his name just General Penn Simmons? You gotta say it in the voice. General Penn Simmons. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yep. Um, and part of the problem with the British at this point is actually communication, because when they had advanced into the position that they had pushed the Boers out of, they started taking fire from their own artillery. Oh, shit. Because they hadn't calculated the, the timing on the artillery right. And so after they successfully pushed the Boers back from where the Boers had stopped, they start getting shelled from their own artillery. God. Yeah, so not great. Um, And in light of this situation and the fact that they've now lost their general, the British decided to withdraw from the town and encampment of Dundee to join up with the larger garrison at the nearby and much more formidable British stronghold of Lady Smith. Lady Smith. Lady Smith. <laughs> and then this is this is just a fun little side note. So after I wrote this, I went to just look if there were any like fun facts to put in, stuff that wasn't really uh you know in the narrative, but just sort of fun facts like about how this was the first battle, the British war khaki, that kind of stuff. And in the Wikipedia article for the town where this battle took place, there's a note that this was the first tested use of indirect fire, which is when artillery shoots at something that is not in its line of sight, like over a mountain or something like that, and arcs artillery up and over something to hit some place they can't see. And this was this, according to the Wikipedia article for this town, was the first time this was used. And I was like, that doesn't really make sense, because yeah, the British took fire from their own artillery. But the artillery wasn't on the other side of a mountain. It was just further back behind their lines and didn't know how far they were advancing. Like, it wasn't indirect fire. So I was trying to figure out, like, what's the deal? Why does Wikipedia think this was the first use of indirect fire? Because I even, like, drew a little sketch on, you know, the back of a Hot Pocket with where everyone was. <laughs> and it was like, this. it doesn't make sense that anyone would be using indirect fire. It just, yeah, I was like, I don't really understand how this would work. And so I start Googling just various search terms involving the name of this battle, indirect fire, artillery, stuff like that. And what I find out is that in an encyclopedia, the New International Encyclopedia from 1914, in its article about artillery, there's a paragraph that ends a section that mentions the artillery at this battle. And then the very next section is about artillery during the Russo-Japanese War, which is around the same time, late late 19th century. And the second sentence of that mentions that it was the first attested successful use of indirect fire. It was almost word for word what was said in the Wikipedia article about this battle, but it's actually in the next section of an encyclopedia article about a war literally on the opposite end of the world, and somehow someone copied that into the Wikipedia article for this town. 
Man, I, I gotta say, I appreciate your attention to detail. Mm, mm-hmm. I mean, because the hot I pocket put math that in doesn't there. lie. The hot pocket yeah. math does not lie, and it wasn't, it wasn't nope. adding up. But it just no, goes to show we, you that, like, I'm not one of those people who's like, don't, don't use Wikipedia. I read Wikipedia all the time, but if you don't know where the information is coming from on Wikipedia, that's when you want to be suspicious. And, like, there was no footnote for this bit about the indirect fire, and there's no explanation of how it would work. There was just one sentence about it, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. And so I went digging, and yeah, this is this is what I turned up. So it's like, don't not read Wikipedia, but when Wikipedia isn't clear where the information's coming from, that's when you want to make sure you can find an actual source for it. Yeah, and the more I use it, um, exclusively for research in the show, obviously, um, but the more I use it, the more I notice sentences that don't even have citation needed put next to it. It's just like somebody wrote what they were thinking in there, or their opinion about something, and they don't back it up with anything. And uh, that's why I, I started, you know, like reading family heritage websites instead of fucking Wikipedia. <clears throat> yeah. But, yeah, I always enjoy when I see like two people who've gotten into like a Wikipedia editing fight and are going back and forth, like changing the article about some historical person. <laughs> Seriously, it's the, it's 1984 deleting things and changing people's pictures and inventing people. It's it's a it's a mess. Yeah, but enough yep. on that. Anyway, that was just a fun side note about this uh this Wikipedia malfeasance. Mm 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 mm. Anyway, so <laughs> yep. So General Marula um orders a small detachment, including Danae's and his brother, to cautiously advance towards Dundee to see if the British had actually fully withdrawn, because they see that the British are moving off the field and, like, moving away, but he wants to make sure they've actually left Dundee. And so, Danae's and his little group are making their way towards Dundee to see if the British have actually left, when, just a few hundred yards ahead of them, they spot about a half dozen British soldiers running up a slope. And so they call to them and, you know, order them to halt and whatnot and lay down their weapons, you know, the whole deal. And the British ignored them. So Denes and the others leapt from their horses, went prone and began firing, quickly bringing down two of the British soldiers because the Boers are very, very good shots. And at that point, the rest stopped and surrendered, you know, once they started getting hit, which typically I'd like to add. I'd like I'd like to add my own little Wikipedia edit here. Um, it wasn't losing two guys that made the British stop. It was that Denae's did a 360 no scope um, on one of them, and it was so scary they had to all give up. Fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what happened. They they and, knew uh, if he got it's... very many more kills, he'd get the tactical nuke, and then it would have been all over. H hold on, I'm, I'm I'm updating the Wikipedia article right now. All right, there, <laughs> fixed 360 no scope. <clears throat> okay, good. Glad that's done. <laughs> so anyway, um, of the two who had been hit, one was dead and the other injured. Uh, the soldiers told Denes and the other Boers that they were a signal party that had gotten lost in the fog and mist of the, the night and the early morning, which that really did everybody, didn't it? Like that fog really just messed up everybody. Like, you got that British cavalry yeah. detachment, God only knows doing what. You've got these guys just lost. You've got Danae sitting on the rock playing go fish while the battle happens. Like, everybody got messed up by the fog. They call it the and fog so, of yeah, war. The fog of war. And they were uh, very, <laughs> or rather, as Danae says, they were greatly taken aback when they were told that their <laughs> regiment sweet. had evacuated Dundee and withdrawn. Because they're trying to get back to Dundee to find their regiment, and they're told, oh yeah, they left. 
They're like, oh, well, that is most unfortunate. <laughs> we so, will um, be back yeah, when... in time for tea, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so Denise and the others ordered the British to carry their wounded comrade to the field hospital that was located at Dundee, and then they rode on ahead. And I love how they, like, capture these guys, and then they're just like, yeah, carry, carry your wounded buddy to Dundee and put him in the hospital and then they just leave it's like okay we captured you bye it's like capture the flag <laughs> yep it's like we well, you're tagged you're tagged <laughs> tag you're Brit so yes, <laughs> okay sorry that was good <laughs> so they, they reached Dundee and they found that yes the British army had indeed withdrawn and um they, uh, sorry, lost my place. Ah, yes. So they were soon joined by the rest of General Marula's forces, and the officers quickly lost control of the army, as the men, who had spent days, you know, like, in the rain on very meager rations, began just ransacking the empty town and military base and eating everything. I mean, sure. Yeah. And, uh, Denae's actually seems exactly uh, unsure about exactly why they also quickly just started like looting and ransacking. He says that uh, they knew they couldn't really carry much with them because they travel so light, but um, that quote, the joy of ransacking other people's property is hard to resist. And we gave way to the impulse, which, you know, I guess it's an, in it's an interesting take. And I guess when you've been treated the way the Boers have been treated by the British, you'd probably be pretty eager to get back at them in whatever way you could, even if that meant like, breaking stuff in a place they've already abandoned. Yeah, instead of like, well, I, I get it. I mean, it's the British. You find all these, you know, delicious tins of rations, like that powdered beef that Steve 1984 ate from the Boer War. <laughs> oh, I, I haven't video? seen that. I've not seen that video. He I've seen a, some of his. <laughs> yeah, he eats a Did tin of... Did you say powdered uh, beef? Yeah, it's like shredded beef. Okay, but like powdered. See, shredded almost. beef sounds better than powdered beef. <laughs> It's definitely powdered. I mean, it's like, it's... That'd be it's, reconstitute it's, this beef. You're, like, supposed to boil it in water and drink it as a broth or something. But mm, you should go watch delicious. it. It's fascinating. I will. I will. So anyway, yeah, so they're just, they're ransacking the, the abandoned town and military base. Wait. And the one thing they actually could make use of, of course, as we said, was food. And uh, Denise says, after living on half-cured biltong which is kind of like jerky, if you don't know. It's uh, it's not smoked, and it's much thicker, so rather than being, like, thin strips, it's more like sort of thick cube, like, um, not cubes, like thick rods of jerky, so like an inch, like an inch diameter Oof. rod of jerky. And so, yeah, it's, like, very, very hard to chew, and it's not smoked, but it is very packed with life-saving calories. <laughs> But anyway, so after living on half-cured biltong all these days, we made up for lost time. So apparently they just absolutely ate everything they could find. And especially fruitful in this looting was the British military encampment itself, which was really a wonder to behold for Denais. And here is what he says. Would you like me to do it? I would like you to do it, my good sir. Do you have a preference on voice? Because I'm getting tired of the... Uh... Old lemony snicket, not a cock. Maybe like an excited voice, like he's going to talk about canned food. Ah, here we're entire tents. Oh, damn it. Here we're entire <laughs> streets of tents and great stacks of tinned and other foodstuffs. And knowing the meager way in which our men were fed and equipped, 
I was astonished at the numberless things an English army carried with it in the field. There were mountains of luxurious foods, comfortable camp stretchers, and a profusion of other things too numerous to mention. Stolen from other countries. <laughs> Basically. Uh, I added that so, last part. <laughs> so yeah, soon enough, uh, Marula and the other officers got the situation under control and got the troops in order, presumably after much, much canned food had been eaten and mm. much powdered beef had been reconstituted and heartily enjoyed. Um, <laughs> and Marula ordered his forces to move out to rejoin the larger Boer force, but he decided to leave behind a small detachment to prevent any further looting or mischief. And this is great. So Denae says that he was just happening to be going by, like just doing his own thing, minding his own business, just walking by, as General Marula was picking men and that he accidentally made eye contact with him, so he got chosen. Oh. Which is great, because that's how it is in, like, college classes. You know, the professor looking for a volunteer and you're like, don't make eye contact. And you're, like, looking down, and you look up right as he looks at you and he calls on you. That seems to have been what happened here. Yeah, or it's, they're looking for someone to torment, so you're, like, looking away and the first person they pick, you! Put away your phone! And engage! <laughs> Yeah, you can't show fear. That's they they feed on it. It's true. Very true. Yeah. So Denae's and some <clears throat> others were left there to chill in Dundee. Mm. Um, not his brother though, because his brother was not making eye contact. So this is this is when he and his brother get separated uh, for the first time. Mm. And so he's just there chilling in Dundee with a few other guys to make sure nothing bad happens. And wandering around. So the British Field Hospital had, of course, been left in operation, and uh, Denise actually gets to go see General Penn Simmons, uh, the <laughs> British commander from the recent battle, as he lay there mortally wounded and awaiting death. Aww. And then the next day, Denise walks by again, and he sees a improvised funeral procession starting, and so he actually joins in the funeral procession to the little Anglican church of Dundee and helps bury the body of General Penn Simmons. God damn. They're so good. <laughs> like, yeah, Denny's really does seem like a very nice man. Yeah. Like, a, 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 a nice boy. Like, yeah. he's 17. Seems like a good kid. Yeah. I'd hire him yeah. for a summer job. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. <laughs> Denny's can date my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> but she has to be back by 8. And he'd have her back at 745. That's the kind of guy Denny's is. Exactly. <laughs> And so the next day, however, a horseman arrives and brought word that the commando from Johannesburg, which had occupied an important train and telegraph hub near Ladysmith, had been badly defeated by a British counterattack. As it turns out, it wasn't actually that one-sided of a battle, and casualties were actually about the same on both sides. But the Boers had lost two cannons, which, fun fact, were actually the two cannons that they had captured from the failed Jameson raid back in the previous decade. The, which we talked about last episode. Uh, they lost those two cannons. They were captured by the British. I thought you meant something else by Jameson Raid. No, not that time in college. <laughs> and this days. is just another fun fact. Um, the the Boer, <laughs> this particular Boer force, um, with the one that had been defeated, sadly, also had detachments of German, French, Dutch, American, and Irish Boer foreign volunteers. Um, with it, because as it turns out, there were a lot of volunteers to fight the British. In total, throughout the war, there were about 5,500 foreign volunteers who fought with the Boers against the British, which makes sense when you think about it, because, well, yeah, the British. Right, of course. 
Yes. But that'd be pretty cool to be an American and be like, I'm going to go to South Africa and fight the dirty British. <laughs> that'd be fun. Yeah. Like, Just I'd jump Sign the, me up. Sign me right up. Yep. And here, actually, I copied down the, the oath that these uh, foreign volunteers would swear um, when they came to fight with the Boers. And would you read this for us, Aaron? I, I gladly would. And I'll and read so it as... You, yeah, read it as like a... Like an early 20th century American. Okay. Uh, early 20th century American. Hmm. What did they sound like? It's like that weird... Nah, I'll just be straight American. I hereby make an oath of solemn allegiance to the people of the South African Republic, and I declare my willingness to assist, with all my power, the burghers of this republic. <laughs> <laughs> Classic In... American wanted to assist the burghers. <laughs> <laughs> with all my power the burghers of this republic in the war in which they are engaged I further promise to obey the orders of those placed in authority according to the law and that I will work for nothing but the prosperity the welfare and the independence of the land and the people of this republic so truly help me God almighty <laughs> that, was, that was good I like that pretty voice. American <laughs> yep that was perfect so anyway, as it turns out, like this man's account of the defeat was greatly exaggerated. Like it was not one sided. There were about the same casualties on both sides. But the way this guy tells it, like apparently this was like the end of the world defeat. And so Denez, uh decides to leave his temper, his post to go in search of the rest of his commando unit to try to make sure they still existed. Because the court, like it was basically apocalyptic from this guy who's run in after this battle to bring them the news. And the temporary officer put in charge actually forbids him to leave, but he just does anyway. Very. Once again, the Boers' great strength, their fierce independence was also kind of a problem when it came to managing a military. I can see that. I can see that. Hmm. Yep. Yep. And he finds the assembled Boer army where he expected and camped near the British stronghold of Ladysmith. And he eventually located his own commando and General Marula. And General Marula actually sees him and demands to know why he'd left his station without permission. And Denise said he was there to help take Ladysmith. And according to him, Marula knew he was bullshitting, but just told him to like get it, you know, be on his way, like scram kid, whatever. Like, I know you disobeyed, but just fuck off. <laughs> well, I mean, that's fairly merciful. Yeah. And so the Boers were digging in and taking strong positions around Ladysmith in anticipation of the coming battle, because Ladysmith held a British garrison of about 12,000, while the Boers, spread out among the various commandos, numbered about 14,000. Hmm. Hmm. So there are a lot of troops total in this, this area. Yeah, I would say. Yep. The next morning before dawn, a number of mules laden with ammunition and weapons were caught wandering through the Boer lines by centuries and men were sent to figure out what was going on. It's like, why are there these mules here? Where did they come from? Where were they going? And as it turns out, a significant detachment of British infantry, like several thousand, had left Ladysmith in the cover of darkness, hoping to creep around the edge of the Boer forces and take up a position behind them so that they could attack them from two sides. Wow, so that, but, that's an eerie picture, though. It's like you, you wake up and you're like, what? what? What's that mule doing over there? And you, like, see that it has a gun, and you're like, oh, no. They've oh armed God, the, the mules. The, the mule has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But in the, uh, in the darkness, somehow the mules got spooked and um, began bolting. Some of the mules start, started to bolt, 
and it just throws the whole column into chaos and disarray as people are trying to like hang on to the mules and others are dodging out of the way of the mules and people are falling and like you know slipping on rocks and eventually and eventually somebody slips and lands on his rifle and it goes off which is going to be very loud at like 4 a.m in the middle of the night and so, yeah, the whole thing just goes to hell when the mules get scared. I have got and to say, I did not expect this much quadrupedal influence in this conflict. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. And so with the plan pretty well spoiled, because they're like, well, we've now just had to fight the mules. Half of them are gone. We've also fired weapons on accident. Like, we're not sneaking up on anyone anymore. Uh, they decide they are just going to take up the nearest covered position they can get to because like they don't want to try to creep back because they don't know like, you know, are we going to get ambushed on the way? So we're just going to find the nearest covered position. And so they take up a position in a rock outcropping on a ridge, which is facing the right flank of the Boers. So facing this, the fortress of Ladysmith, it's on the right side. And it's a place called Nicholson's Neck. Great name. Yep. Yep, I do love the place names here. The Drakensberg Mountains, Nicholson's Neck. Can't say I like thinking about Jack Nicholson's Neck, though. <laughs> well, we're going to be talking a lot about it, so Ugh. get used to it. Yep. Turkey. So, um, fortunately for the Transvaal Boers, that is from the Transvaal Republic, so where Denes is, all the ones we've been talking about, mm. they knew that a second force of Boers, the ones from the other Boer Republic, the uh, the Free State, were on its way to meet them coming from the very direction in which the British were hunkered down on Nicholson's Neck. So they actually send a rider to them to tell them about the British being camped out on Nicholson's Neck and request that they engage and dislodge them when they arrive, since they're coming from that direction. It's like, yeah, can you take care of this little problem when you get here? Right, that makes sense. Yep, yep. And so although Denais and the others with him had started shooting at the British on Nicholson's Neck, it was too far of a distance for it to have much effect other than forcing them into cover. Um, so they're just like, yeah, we should just start shooting at them. We can see them way, way in the distance. So it's too far to actually hit anything, but it just keeps the British on their toes. Mm. But soon they were forced to turn their attention elsewhere. Uh Uh-oh. As great columns of dust rose up to the sky as the fortress of Ladysmith disgorged its garrison and thousands upon thousands of British regulars marched in formation to the plain in front of Ladysmith. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, they're all, they're all marching out. 12,000 of them. Hmm. And uh, the British, or sorry, the Boers, very modest complement of artillery, which was set up on a ridge called Pepworth Hill, began to bombard the British columns. But the small number of the Boer cannons overall meant that even though they were firing effectively, the British casualties were pretty low because they just didn't have that many cannons. Right. Meanwhile, as the infantry... Um, of the British infantry sort of took the brunt of that Boer bombardment, the British cannons came up behind them, like battery after battery, dozens of cannons, and started unlimbering from their wagons and lining up. And then, <clears throat> yes. Oh no, I was I was going to make a comment earlier, but I think I'll save that for later. Yeah. And so then the British guns opened up, and uh, Denae says about this. And go ahead, Aaron. Ah, uh, yes, of course. With the thunder of the British guns and of our own, the crash bursting shells and the din of a thousand rough oh, sorry, din of thousands of rifles, there was a volume of sound unheard in South Africa before. I was rather, oh my god, I was awed rather than frightened. Wow! Hmm. I think yep. I'd be both. <laughs> yeah, pro- yeah, me too, me yep. too. 
So as uh, as the British infantry advanced, uh, Denez was right in the midst of the Boer front with his rifle, um, you know, shooting at them with everyone else. And the British halted eventually and began to go prone and take covered position, directing massive fusillades of rifle fire at the Boer position. And all the while, like they're just, you know, thousands shooting. But the Boer casualties are actually pretty low because, you know, they were sort of in their dug-in position. They'd, they'd gotten to choose their own ground around the city. So even though the British are just nonstop shooting, the Boer casualties are pretty low at this point from the rifle fire. But the Boer battery on Pepworth Hill was in trouble because the British batteries had soon focused their fire on the Boer guns and, quote, Aaron... Its summit was covered with smoke and flame, and the roar of the bursting shells shook the ground even where we lay. Whoa. Yeah, so like all dozens of guns are all firing at this one hill. <laughs> and at this point, uh, Denez meets an acquaintance from home who's coming by, and he asks him about his brother, because remember, he hasn't seen his brother since he got selected from guard for guard duty in Dundee. And he is horrified to learn that his brother Joubert was stationed with the artillery on Pepworth Hill. Oh no! Yeah, so Denez just runs for his horse, and he rides hell for leather through the smoke and the explosions to try to reach the hill and find his brother. And when he gets to the rear of the hill, because he obviously doesn't go up the front, since that's what's exposed to the British artillery, it's just, it's a hellish sight. Ugh. Six or seven horribly mangled bodies of dead artillerymen were laid out on a canvas sheet where they were carried after being killed by the British shells while manning the guns on top of the hill. A German doctor named Ferdinand Holtz was busily <coughs> rushing back and forth attending to the wounded being brought down from the hill. An ambulance wagon stood idle, its mules hung dead in their harnesses pierced by shrapnel. Jeez. Yeah. Each British volley sent 20 to 30 shells exploding on the hilltop. Denez tied his horse to a tree and rushed among the dead and wounded to make sure he didn't find his brother among them. When he didn't, he made his way up the hill, crawling on his stomach from one stone to the next for cover and briefly sprinting in the pause between the bursts of shells. He finally reaches the sandbag fortification behind which the artillerymen, driven from their guns, lay in cover. Just yards from the guns and surrounded by the dead and dying... Uh, he finds his brother in the sandbag fortification with the other Boers, still safe and sound. And although Denez tried to convince him to return to the main force with him, Joubert refused to leave his position. And um, so Denez waited for the next pause and fire and ran down the hill, passing on his way the body of Dr. Ferdinand Holtz, who had in the meantime been killed by a British shell while tending to the wounded. God, that's horrifying. Yeah. So like he finds his brother, but his brother's like, nope, this is my position. I'm staying. And then, yeah, the fact that he like sees the doctor alive on the way up and then he's dead on the way down. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty terrible. But when he arrives back at his uh, his commando on the front, he finds everything much as it had been with the Boers holding and the British advance just stalled on the field. But they could hear the rising sounds of battle from nearby Nicholson's Neck, where the Free State Boers were, as requested, pressing the British position pretty hard. And so uh, Corporal Malherba, one of the five Malherba brothers, decides that they're going to go help out the Orange Free State Boers. And he gathered those around him, about a dozen, including Denez, and he led them along the ridge and then down into the valley on the other side, or the, the valley, and down into the valley, on the other side of which was Nicholson's Neck. And so, although they came under British rifle fire while crossing the open space, they actually made it to the foot of the rise without anyone being hit. Good for them. And they slowly scaled the side of the ridge. 
And when they make it to the top of the plateau, Nicholson's Neck, they're not really sure where the British are and where the Orange Free Staters are, and they could just hear gunfire in all directions, so they're all just kind of there, like prone, like we're not sure which way are the bad guys. But wow, soon enough, fine. as they're just like crawling forward on their stomachs, they spot a detachment of Free State Bowers and rush to join them behind the cover of some boulders. And the Free State are then able to sort of orient them and point out where the British were holding position, which is about 30 yards away in similar cover, so also behind boulders. Looking around, Denais could see that the Free State Bowers were positioned along the whole width of the ridge, with each small unit covering behind a cluster of boulders. <clears throat> Smart. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just yeah. fascinated. Please keep going. <laughs> yeah. And so this ends up being the most intense firefight Denais had yet been in, because for over an hour... The rifles of the British and the Boers sounded against each other on the top of Nicholson's neck, and slowly the Boers advanced and took more ground, as it became clear that the British were getting the worst in this engagement, and they're slowly advancing and pushing the British back. And of this, Denise recalls, Aaron? Both sides were maintaining a vigorous short-range rifle contest, in which the soldiers were being badly worsted, for they were up against the real old-fashioned Free State Boers, for whom there were, there were no match in sharpshooting of this kind. Time after time I saw soldiers looking over their defenses to fire, and time after time I heard the thud of a bullet finding its mark, and could see the unfortunate man fall back out of sight, killed or wounded. Whoa, I thought that being able to hear the bullet hit a person was just like a movie thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Denise says you could, so... I trust him. Yep. So as the Boers push the British to the far edge of this uh, this hill and continue to advance, they realize just how many casualties they had inflicted on the uh, on the British because they're just passing scores of British dead and wounded. And Denae says, almost behind every rock uh, lay a dead or wounded man. Jeez, Whew, getting smoked. Yeah. So as the Boers pressed on the British position, a, bu a bugle sounded and the white flag of surrender went up. As the Boers ceased firing, hundreds of dusty, khaki-clad figures emerged from the rocks, eventually totaling 1,100 prisoners. Woo! Yeah, that's, so like this a is lot. a lot of guys. Yeah. Yep. And so as they were uh, taking account of the captured soldiers, uh, Denise was wandering around happily chatting with captured officers, as he tends to do, <laughs> when suddenly he's talking to this British officer— and the officer points to the plane and exclaims, My God, look there. <laughs> I love that and voice And when Denise so turns, turns to look, he sees that the British forces were hastily withdrawing from the field, unable to advance against the Boer lines or to break them with artillery. As they were withdrew, it began to resemble more of a rout than a retreat, as nearly 10,000 weary soldiers eagerly rushed for the safety of the fortified town of Ladysmith. My God. Woo. Yep. So, despite having that many men and horses ready and eager, and actually more, because he is about 14,000, the Boer commander, General Joubert, did not press the advantage. He, he doesn't order them to charge for some reason. And Denise hmm. remembers hearing Christian Dewet, who was the leader of the recent successful assault on Nicholson's Neck, angrily repeating under his breath, Loose the horsemen! Loose the horsemen! But General Joubert did not loose the horsemen. If huh. he had given the order and sent sent the horsemen out, that entire 10,000 would likely have been pushed right through Ladysmith and beyond, probably all ending up captured or dead, 
devastating the British position in the Natal and possibly forcing the British into negotiating early from a position of weakness like they had done in the first Boer War. Everyone was shocked and angered at General Joubert's decision, including Denay's. He asked General Marula what the, de- what the hell the deal was, and Marula told him that he had demanded that same thing from Joubert, who had responded by quoting an old Dutch proverb, When God holds out a finger, don't take the whole hand. Meaning that since they had already had some success that day, they should leave it at that and not presume further. Corporal Malherba responded that that was fine for theology, but useless in war. Yeah, that's a tough one. Do you want to make the Protestant response, Aaron? The Protestant response? Of course, you know, these are these are all Protestants. Oh, I, uh, these are not my Protestants, though, you see. Uh, my denomination is correct, and all we care about is money. <laughs> My denomination always presses the advantage in war. <laughs> so with the uh, with the battle closed, Denise looks around him and um, sort of takes stock of the situation. And he writes, Dead and wounded soldiers lay all around, and the cries and groans of agony and the dreadful sights haunted me for many a day. For though I had seen death by violence of late, there had been nothing to approach the horrors accumulated there. And uh, at this point in his memoirs, Denise actually has a little bit more reflection about the uh, the war. And so I want to close out the material for today with a little bit of a longer quote from Denise about sort of his thoughts about this part of the war and this this battle. And Aaron, would you read this? Uh, it would be my uh, my honor. With that lack of vision that marred most of our doings in the early stages, we hailed the Ladysmith battle as a great victory, and acted as if we had broken and defeated enemy... Uh, I'm sorry, acted as if we had a broken and defeated enemy before us. It was certainly a notable success, but in the end it would have been better for us had the British smashed our line that day. For our leaders would then have followed a better plan of campaign than sitting down to a prolonged and ruinous siege. Had the Boers made for the coast instead of tying up their horsemen around towns that were of no value to them, the outcome of the war might have been different, but they sacrificed their one great advantage of superior mobility, and allowed the splendid guerrilla fighters to stagnate and demoralize in the monotony of siege warfare at a time when our only salvation lay in pushing to the sea. Oh. Yep, so that's the... That's sort of, you know, Denise's retrospective thinking about the war, that uh, the whole... The refusal of General Joubert to wipe out the that British army when he had the chance and to just sort of take the lesser victory is sort of indicative of a lot of their whole problem of not using their actual strengths to their advantage and you know their mobility their speed and because you know a retreating force in a route that's when cavalry are going to be absolutely devastating right not in sieging a town kind of thing and so yeah Denise in retrospect is sort of you know thinking of the the big picture yeah yeah i mean that's that's a tough one because i mean you know a, a routing enemy force it's like if you're a really nice guy if you're a really nice you know, you or say even maybe a really, really moral person, you know, chasing down fleeing men after a clear victory just to wipe out their potential as a, you know, another fight on another day, um, that's always a tough one. Yep. 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 It's complicated. 
War is complicated business. It must be solved from within this tavern. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's where we're going to leave off the story today. And uh, next week, uh, we'll pick up with some more of Denise's involvement in the war and then probably zoom out a little bit to get a little bit of the bigger picture of how the war ended and uh, Denise's later life. But uh, yeah, that's the that's the stuff I wanted to cover today. So we've actually we've only gotten 18 days into the war here at this point. Wow. Yeah, I. Yeah, it's uh. I just, I mean, I don't know, I had a lot of thoughts come up during that story, mainly like, I can't believe I didn't know this, um, and also, like, it's really kind of sad that it's not really widely known. Um, you know, yep. history, history's a, she's a tough old bird, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> this, and pretty much... In the last 500 years, no matter where you where you touch down in history, you can probably find the British there being jerks. Yeah, it's it's kind of true though. I was reading a uh, I was reading something interesting um, that C.S. Lewis wrote, and he said there's basically two Britons: one that's this brutal, awful um, monster, and another that's this sort of it's almost like the the kindly old British man, right? And he said, too often the, the one gets a hold of the country and the other doesn't. I just thought that was pretty true. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, sadly, looking at the last 500 years, it's pretty clear which one was usually in control. Yeah. Ugh, what a pity. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any other thoughts? Yes. Um, Danae's rates, I really like him. He's fascinating. Uh, yeah, no, and it's, you know, of course it's, important to keep in mind yeah he's 17 when all this is happening which is just like what were you doing when you were 17 Aaron uh probably playing video games I mean it's that pathetic <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I don't know I really like this character very very interesting um Yes, much. Yep, thanks. So thanks again to uh, to Dylan for recommending him yeah like I, I love it when we get recommendations and I think we gotta wrap this one up soon, so we can have some some fun and do that drunk episode we've been we've been uh, duly donated to. <laughs> to, to. Um, yes, this is true. Yes, this is true. But uh, that that will be for another day. In in this case, I think this is a, a great place to stop. All right, let's do it. Now let's get let's get up there to that surface area, and uh, well, at least we don't have to deal with. General Coley? <laughs> George Pomeroy Coley. All right, all right. All right. I hope he's not up there, because if he is, I'm going to be disappointed. Oh, God. He's probably eating the Hot Pockets right now. <laughs> that bastard, stop him. So, Aaron, once the, uh, the stock market crashes... With no survivors, and society as we know it ceases to function, what is the first way that you'll exercise your newfound freedom? Uh, uh, I don't know. Probably, like, raid the nearest... I can't, I can't keep doing the hot pocket thing. All right. <laughs> uh, with, when the stock market crashes and there are no survivors, I will probably, like, smoke a cigarette and just watch it all burn down and just think to myself, my God, what hath God wrought? And then 
I don't know, I'll probably fire a gun into the air or something. <laughs> what about you? Once the stock market crashes with no survivors and society as we know it ceases to function, what is the first way you'll exercise your newfound freedom? Well, obviously, stop paying my taxes. That's, oh, that's yes. One. It's going to be so good. Yeah. yeah, stop paying taxes. Um, hmm, let's see. I don't know. Maybe do some drifting in like the local gas station parking lot, dude. You'll you'll be like a like a like a like a merc of some kind. I bet just like yeah, I'll kill him. <laughs> yeah. How how would you accept payment as a wasteland mercenary? Um, I mean, if Tarkov's taught me anything, it's that cigarettes and condensed milk are a great form of currency. Very true. Very true. Uh. You know what's funny, though? So, like, the whole toilet paper thing is hilarious, but there, there's a lot of stores around here where people are like, THE SHELVES ARE EMPTY! And you, like, go in and you're like, only the paper product shelves. Yeah, that's, that's true. I went to the grocery store a few days ago, and yeah, the only empty shelf was the toilet paper. What the fuck? I, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. Alright, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today, and I think it was a particularly good show indeed. Um, thank you, George. If you thank hate you, us, thank you. what? I was just said thank you, thank you. Oh, of course. If you hate us, you're probably a British artillery shell, or uh, maybe you're just British and you're really tired of us shitting on your history. Uh, or maybe you're a mule. Or, or maybe you're a mule with a gun. So either way, <laughs> consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. And remember, we're we're rolling out our Discord server this week. I don't know if it'll amount to anything, but we want to try some new things. Uh, the link is in the description. If it fails, it fails. If it doesn't fail, it doesn't fail. I, I don't know. We'll see. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let um, the, the, the boars play you out. Did we do the boars last week? What did we do last week? I think we did the same, but I couldn't think of a new one since it's the same series. I know what it's going to be. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of Steve1989 eating a boar ration play you out. <laughs> Tear off the band in the center where two tins will be found, one containing four ounces of concentrated beef and the other containing four ounces of cocoa paste. Wow. I don't think that this is going to be edible, but... I'm gonna let that kind of settle on my tongue for a second. That's, that literally tastes like dirt. It just tastes like there's there's so much like bone and cartilage and stuff mixed in. Like it's filled with that. And when they say boil it for an hour, yeah, that's definitely the way to do it. That's, that's what we're gonna do with this. Look at that. Oh, that is. If you could smell it, like, listen, it, it's not normal if it can make me wheeze like that. I mean, imagine how grateful you'd be.